For all the years I've been here, I've always appreciated the fact that on Christmas Eve and Good Friday, we would preach with the lights off. However, this last year, I discovered my eyes don't work quite the way they used to. (laughs) What's so starking about it is that on Christmas Eve, a solo candle on the altar creates a lot of warmth. The baby Jesus coming into the world makes all the difference. And yet on Good Friday, a solo candle on the altar, I get a completely different feeling, one of aloneness, of, of coldness, that Jesus was alone. Throughout the Lenten season, I've attempted to try to talk about different ideas that the church includes in the Lenten season that may be part of the reason why so many individuals struggle with a regular Lenten participation. Maybe it's our fault. We use ideas and thoughts in such a way that you don't really understand or or connect the dots and how important they are, not only for the season of Lent, but also uh, for the rest of our lives. We talked about things like you are dust. We talked about foot washing and and fasting, uh, prayer and repentance, common themes and thoughts that many have. And then we talked about the Lord's Supper last night, and then one that isn't so easily associated with Lent, and that's the fact that we are family, that the words that Jesus speaks, the things that he does, while they're done for the individual, they're done for all of us as his children Tonight I want to pick up a similar thought, um, a thought that really changed my idea, my thoughts when it came to preaching. Actually, it really changed my whole experience when it comes to Lent. And that word or that thought is, Jesus was forsaken. He was all alone, completely alone. The two passages that we talk about are going to be both out of Matthew Matthew 26, 56, all the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. And in the next chapter, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, or that is, my God, my God, why hast you forsaken me? Has it ever occurred to you? Have you ever spent any time at all thinking about how completely and utterly alone Jesus was on the cross? Christ was all by himself as he suffered and died for you and for me. Our two texts focus our attention on the fact that he was alone. The first one, of course, it addresses the the fact that the disciples, his friends, those who were with him, how they deserted him in the garden. And the second text shows that even God the Father deserted Jesus. Now together, these texts paint a very poignant picture. Jesus Christ, Son of God, and son of man was forsaken by God and by man. 
take the forsaken by man first. I don't know if it blows your mind like it does mine that the disciples who had been so close to Jesus for three plus years had witnessed miracle after miracle. These guys were in a boat in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, fearing for their lives, and they saw Jesus walking on the water. Even let Peter do it. They saw Jesus take five loaves and two fishes, feed 5,000, and end up with 12 baskets left over. He watched the blind receiving their sight, the lame being able to walk, the dead being raised again. They themselves were even given privilege to go out, preach the word, and have power to cast out demons. These are guys that had the opportunity to rub elbows with Jesus and be engaged in all that he was doing. And if anybody would have been considered a friend of Jesus, it would have been the 12. But please understand that Jesus didn't assume that to be true. He actually knew better. He knew human nature. David writes in Psalm 139, God, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Jesus knew what it was to be a man because he was one. Remember last night at the, at the celebration of the Passover meal? Here Jesus has taken this historical celebration of great deliverance of the Israelites, God's people, from the land of slavery to the promised land. And Jesus shocks them all. He says, I need to let you know one of you is going to betray me tonight. A little later, after they tried to figure out who it was, he shocked them again by predicting that it wasn't just one that would betray him, but that all of them would desert him when the time of crisis arrived. It wasn't too long after those pronouncements that the very same things played out. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane for a time of prayer. Jesus specifically asked Peter, James, and John, three of those that seemed to develop a a relatively close relationship with him. They were a part of things that not all the other disciples were. He wanted them to come a little bit farther into the garden with him to offer him support, to pray not only for him as he sought to address what was about to face him, but also for them to pray for themselves that they wouldn't fall into any kind of temptation or danger. And so Jesus goes away, not once, but three times. And what about Peter, James, and John? Were they of any help at all? Not hardly. They fell asleep and they stayed asleep all the time that Jesus was praying with his father that his father's will would be done. Then, at that moment, a a band of soldiers invaded this private moment with Jesus and his disciples in order to arrest him, guided by Judas, just as Jesus had said would happen. But when it became apparent 
that Jesus was going to yield to these ruffians and, and go along with what their request was, Peter lashes out with a sword, trying to stop it all. And he's the one that is reprimanded, not Judas and those that were seeking to take him away. And once that happened, not only Peter, but all the other disciples fled. They didn't want to be close to Jesus because they were afraid that if they stayed too close and were identified as one of his disciples, they too would face the same end that Jesus was facing. So they deserted Jesus and fled, just as Jesus said they would. And I don't know about you, but the desertion uh, by Jesus of his closest friends is for me at least, one of the more disappointing parts of the passion story. I don't know about you, but I, I, I root for one of those disciples to say, not me. Lord, I will be here for you. I want one of them to win. I want one of them to stand up for the man that he loved. You've done so much, Lord. I will stick with you to the end. But that's not what happens. I don't have a role model amongst the disciples to help me in my time of need. All I have from them is the reminder that when it comes to difficult challenges in my life, as with the disciples, I fold. Because I, like them, think more of myself than my Lord Jesus himself. You see, some of the mistreatment of Jesus we would understand, right? When it comes to the Pharisees, the clergy of the day, that makes all the sense in the world to me. For three years, Jesus pestered them, stepped on their toes, pointed out to everybody the frauds that they really were. Well, the fact that they would want to betray Jesus, that makes sense. They wanted to get rid of him. They were the ones that came up with the plot in the first place. Now, what about Pontius Pilate? Sadly, I, I kind of understand why he, too, melted away. Why he sacrificed an innocent man. For what? Political expediency? Well, I'm not really sure that shocks any of us. What politician do you know of that will stand on the word that they give? Or is it more common to see them throw an innocent man or a woman or individual under the bus, a lower person in the cabinet, so that they themselves will be free from any kind of harm or danger? That's all Pilate was doing. He wanted to keep his job. He didn't care if Jesus died. The common people who just a few days earlier were rallying, cutting down palm branches, throwing their clothes on the road, cheering to the loudest voice that Jesus is a son of David, Hosanna in the highest. How could they be caught so unawares that on Friday the Pharisees could organize their own crowd of Jesus haters and whip him up crying for his blood. Sadly, how often do we really pay attention to the spiritual dynamic that goes on in our life 
outside of church? Do we look at our spiritual faith, our religion, in such a way that it's a Sunday or a weekend activity, a special event like tonight? What about all the other days of the week? Are we aware how Satan is using our lack of attention to gear up the opposing forces? And if nothing else, there were no disciples there to encourage or rally the common folk to come to Jesus' defense. The soldiers, I've seen enough of those war movies to realize that soldiers, well, they're just a a callous group of individuals. Uh, gambling for his clothing while he dies in front of them. Well, you know, they're just a rough crowd. I can't imagine they thought there was any kind of etiquette that they needed to follow while Jesus was dying right in front of them. Judas, of course, sadly makes a lot of sense to us. Why did he desert Jesus? Well, he wasn't in it for the right reason. Jesus was a popular guy. Crowds, thousands would follow him. He probably wanted to be a part of the group. Not to mention he was the treasurer for the disciples. And then, of course, there's those 30 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money back in the day. And what was he asked to do? Give Jesus a kiss. What's up with that? 30 pieces of silver for that? I can see how he would be easily tempted but that the most intimate friends of Jesus, that they should let him down. It comes to a blow to us whether we can identify with them or not. And even though Jesus knew that that they would leave him, it still must have come at quite a blow when he actually experienced it. He was all by himself. But an even greater blow came the next day at Calvary. Surrounded by enemies, deserted by friends, what did Jesus do? He did what he always did. He turned to the one he knew he could count on, God the Father, who more than once publicly testified that this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. With him I'm well pleased. How often Jesus went to his father for a time of comfort. He turned to him often, even the night before he was betrayed. Even on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, the third time he's away, the disciples are sleeping. He's praying so intensely, he is sweating blood. God the Father sent him angels to minister to him. That was mere hours ago. Surely God would be there. He had always been a very present help in time of trouble. And yet, he wasn't there. In his hour of greatest need, Jesus turned to his loving father once again. And God wasn't there. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it was true. God had forsaken his son. If we're shocked that the disciples deserted our Savior, 
aren't you just a little more shocked by the fact that God, his Father, deserted him? Sure, we know God the Father to be a a harsh judge, one that doesn't tolerate sin, one that expects us to listen and obey. Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. But we also know God as a merciful God, as a God who loves, a God who cares. It doesn't make sense. God the Father deserting his son. Never was a person more alone in trouble than Jesus was. He was forsaken by man and God alike. I must confess, it is a little unfair of me to connect the two desertions, and here's why. I did it so that you would have an opportunity to to think about how alone Jesus really was, forsaken by man, forsaken by God. But these two desertions, they come from two totally different places. The disciples Well, they deserted Jesus because of cowardice, fickleness, disloyalty, selfishness. They weren't prepared. But God, the Father, he didn't have those motives. He didn't think like that. There's nothing cowardly, fickle, or disloyal about him. If God deserts his son, he's got to have a good reason. And we can be sure of that. But there's even more to it than that. That God's motives for deserting Jesus were pure? Okay. But that doesn't mean that Jesus did something to warrant the Father's lack of response. For if God had a good reason for forsaking Jesus, then does that mean Jesus must have done something damning to deserve such treatment from God? But you see, that's not the case either. Jesus had done no wrong. The scriptures are most emphatic in the claim that Jesus was totally without sin. Jesus had done nothing awful. Nevertheless, there was something awful on him. He had committed no sin. Yet on the cross, he was teeming with sins. Our sins. Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's mind-boggling to think, but it's out of love that Jesus had assumed our sins, and God in his holiness damned him for our sins. He had accorded the sin that punishment, uh, the punishment that sin deserves, and that forsakenness of the Father was a part of that. It amounts to hell. I, I said before that God had a good reason for doing what he did, and that's certainly true. It was his goodness, in fact, the Father's loathing of sin that made him desert Jesus the way he did. It's not because Jesus had sinned, but because Jesus was covered with our sins. 
It wasn't because God didn't love his son. It's because God so loved us. That's why he did it. Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. Cursed. In other words, Jesus was damned. You know, sometimes when we think of hell, we think, oh, well, of course, hopefully nobody wants to go there. But we think of what? Burning fire, gnashing of teeth, not good stuff, right? But that's really not the curse of hell. I mean, think about it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a fiery furnace that was so hot it killed the soldiers that threw them in there. And yet nothing happened to them when they were in there. They didn't singe their clothes or their hair. They experienced this heat. And they came out alive without any damage. Why? Because in that fire, in that furnace, God was with them. That's not what hell is. Hell is where God isn't. We sometimes throw that word hell around haphazardly. And we do it, and we think that we have a grasp of hell. You know why we don't get what hell is? Is because God has never forsaken us. We have never been alone. Even if we say we're alone, or we feel alone, or our friends desert us, we have never been outside of the presence of God. And it's all because Jesus was. Jesus was cursed. He was condemned because of us. So that we would never experience it. It's not because God didn't love Jesus. It's because God loves you. And so if you think about it, there is a closer connection than I first suggested between the two desertions. You might say that one desertion was responsible for the other. The disciples forsaking Jesus was part of that problem that we have with sin. What the disciples did after Jesus' capture in Gethsemane, deserting him, was really only another painful, for instance, of what man has been doing to their relationship with God from the very beginning people since Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve themselves have what? They've been doing things their own way. They leave them out of their, their planning, their thinking, their living, and they go their own sweet way. In essence, they desert God. And as you would expect, there are consequences to such con- conduct. If the people of God forsake God, they're forsaking a relationship with him, and God must desert the people. Why, you say? Because the Almighty God cannot exist. Excuse me. The sinner cannot exist in the presence of the Almighty God. His holiness 
will destroy them because of their sin. He must pull back. He can't have the relationship with him, with them that he intended. The only way he could avoid this, avoid the divine necessity was to place our sins on his own dear son and desert him in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus, that's exactly what God did to Jesus on this night. He deserted Jesus so that Jesus could experience the whole consequences that sin demands. And that is to be forsaken by God. And he did it because he loves us. That's why he did it. So you see that as hard as it is to get our hands around the fact that God forsook God, that's what the scripture says. And oh, by the way, it fits with the theme of sacrifices. It fits with how sins are paid for. Mankind's desertion of God, symbolized by the disciples in the garden, was responsible for the Father's desertion of Jesus on Calvary. It was the price that God was willing to pay to save us from our sins. And because the Father deserted Jesus to save us, we can be happy about it. Unlike the disciples, we have the perspective of 2,000 years to look back. We know his death, his damnation, as terrible as it was, only lasted a moment. Easter's coming. Death did not keep its hold on Jesus. And he rose, not only for himself, but for us. Because he was abandoned, we will never be abandoned. How can I say that? God would not be a just God to punish Jesus and then turn around and punish us too. To abandon Jesus because of us and then turn around and abandon us too. That's not how a holy God operates. It's because Jesus was alone. You and I will never be alone. Neither in this life, nor the life to come. Because Jesus was forsaken, God will always be with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.